Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Phil Mackey. Troubled, sensitive, artistic. Judd Zolgad. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. Dave, do you have any uh, hot stove sounders? I need a hot stove, like a sizzle here. Like really hot? Like a hot, as hot as you can make it sound. Salt in a swap? We got hot stove on TV right now in the TCL broadcast studios. We got MLB hot stove on, and there is a juicy... Well, we're about to discuss the next Babe Ruth. Plump. The Japanese Babe Ruth. Number three. Sizzler. Oh, that's yeah. Right. There it is. Oh, that's the right big there. creepy one. Yep. Uh, Greg Ganyu in about 10, 15 minutes to tell some Ric Flair stories. But I believe the first name pronunciation is Shohei. S-H-O-H-E-I. Otani is his last name. Otani so looks the, very convincing For to the me. purposes of this right conversation, uh, we know that Otani oh. is how you pronounce the second part. So mm-hmm. we'll refer to him as Otani. Mm-hmm. 23 years old. The last two years... In the Japanese Pacific League, so the the top Japanese league where you Darvish came from, well, Nishi came from there as well. The last two years, he's hit 320 as a 21- and 22-year-old with the highest OPS of any hitter in Japan. 320 with the highest no. OPS of any hitter in Japan. That right there... That's that right there would be interesting enough, right? Just, wow, okay. I just read about this kid last week. Has, has he been out there as a hot commodity for a while? About and two I or three years that people have been talking about him. Okay, yep, yep. all right. Oh, he also throws 100 miles an hour and is one of the top two or three pitchers in the Japanese Pacific League. A 2.52 career ERA, even better the last three or four years, with the top strikeout rate of any starter in the league. They call him the Japanese Babe Ruth because Babe Ruth 100 years ago was the best hitter and one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. That's what the Japanese Pacific League has with Otani right now. Mm -hmm. So according to Bob Nightingale, USA Today, the Rangers, the Yankees, and the Twins can offer the most money to Otani, who is one of the most talented Japanese baseball players in history. So they have two different ways in which you can acquire Japanese players. Uh, There's... There's the the veteran way, which is the U Darvish way, where you can we're talking hundred million dollar contracts if a guy is twenty five years old or older. Yes. If you're younger, you slot more into the international bonus chunk of pie. Yes. And each team has about five million dollars to spend on international free agents that are under a certain age. And that's what Otani is. If he were to wait a couple of years, and some of the agents are like, dude, just wait two years. You'll be a free. And you agent. can make a bunch of money, but um, the Twins, the Yankees, and the Rangers have the most money left over from their international signing pools, so they can all offer him around three and a half 
million dollars. Now, what's interesting, though, is in reading um, the stories this morning, the posting fees as we know it, which is how the twins um, got Nishioka and uh, Park, that system has expired. And so they're either going they to... They renewed it for the year. Yeah, so, they so they're going to go back to that for a year. Yep. So if you think about it, though, I got to agree with, with the scouts. Why not just wait the two years? Well, he but he's he'll get paid here in a in a few years as well if he's good. So it's I mean if the guy wants to play in the big leagues, here here's the interesting thing. He's a total mystery in a lot of ways, other than what what scouts have been able to see just from a distance. So baseball agencies, the Scott Boris types, he wound up signing with CAA, mm-hmm. which is a huge mega agency. Right. They all had to submit proposals to his family. Hey, we want to represent your client. But they weren't allowed to meet face-to-face with Otani himself. So the Scott Borises of the world are saying, hey, we think this kid has he's a real Sid shot. Sid Finch-like. Sid Finch. Sid Finch was was the, the, famous, uh, the famous 1980s April Fool's Day story by George Plimpton in, in SI. This pitcher that no one had seen that threw like 150 miles per hour. And SI sold it, and it actually worked. People were like, who is this Sid Finch? And, it was, it was and he a, didn't exist. Was <laughs> he was this mythical pitcher so that George Plimpton. we think Otani exists. Yes. We're not 100% sure. Uh, but no, but you know, Buster only wrote a big piece this week for ESPN.com. Nobody knows where he prefers to live, West Coast, East Coast. There's been some rumors that he wants to be a part of more of a startup, yep. you know, smaller organization, which would you know favor the Twins. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody knows if he prefers, at some point, if he had to choose pitching or hitting, what do you want to do? I think, based on a couple things I've read and seen, he'd love to be able to do both. So then the question is, American League, you could start once every five days, and then you could DH uh, the other three or four days of the week. Yep. In the National League, you probably don't want to put him at a position and have him pitch and have him hit. You probably want him to pitch and DH. So American League makes more sense. Another checkbox in favor of the Twins. So it's all... Very interesting. The how, twins in the mix for the Japanese Babe Ruth. How much? How high would you be tempted if you were Falvey to go on a kid like this? It's capped. It's capped. So the way it works is you offer as much of your $5 million bonus pool right. for international free agents as you can. The Twins, Rangers, and Yankees have all... So most money is spent on uh, Latin American, uh, like the Miguel Sano's when they're 16 years old. Mm-hmm. The Twins, Rangers, and Yankees have saved a lot of that money, presumably for the Otani bidding. So he'll get like the $3.5 million signing bonus, whatever's left of your pool, mm-hmm. and then he'll be slotted in as a as a pre-arbitration guy at a $500,000 salary. So it really comes down to, because he's so young... If he were a veteran, then it would just be like who can offer the most money in some ways, right? Um, or you know, he'll he would choose a team based on the posting fee, and then they would negotiate a contract. In this case, it really comes. It's not as much about money. It really comes down to who he'd want to play for. So if you could just get in a room with the representatives and and unless I'm missing something in this, but I'm ninety five percent sure that it's it's about who he wants to play for. Okay, once so because the money is going to be pretty even. So would he then? Just to be clear, if he came here before the age of 25 so that there would be a cap uh, set on, on how much he could make, would he then sign a contract that would be for a couple years? I think the way it's set up, his salary would be 500 It would be like the league minimum. But his uh, rights would be owned then, correct? Yep. I don't know how long those contracts work out for. So there might, there might be a case to be made that he really should wait. If he wants to make huge money, but again— I I don't I don't know if I don't know how long he'd be capped in the major leagues mm-hmm. if if he'd be a free agent in three years. That's then, what okay, I'm saying. Why not come over here and just right. make some money? And um, now I know I can hear people already. Like I can hear people in their cars. Whoa! 
it didn't work out the last time. The twin, like Nishioka, and yes, that was a colossal disaster. The twins wound up with a bidet in their clubhouse bathroom, and that was the highlight Which of the Seoshi Nishioka. There, right? Yes, as of last year, it was still there. Uh, but in fairness, the, the twins did a butcher hack job of scouting and projecting Seoshi Nishioka. Yeah, he had a fluke three forty batting average his last year. Completely unrepeatable based on the batted ball data and things like that. The Twins were oblivious to that. And so they thought they were getting a legit batting champion who was going to come over and be like this 320 hitter. And that was a horrible misread by them. But there's been a lot of, uh, as far as pitchers, a lot of success stories recently. Yu Darvish, Masahiro Tanaka, uh, even uh, Kenta Maeda and, uh, and Iwakuma yeah. have been solid pitchers. So If you can get you know, a starter for a decent price, yes, yeah, This is a much more legitimate resume for for Otani than Nishioka had going into uh, when the Twins signed him. So the N- we'll Nishioka see. story was d- didn't they d- didn't they get very excited by what they saw on YouTube? Well, I of mean highlights that was him? that was just my. Or like, did you make that? up? That was a joke. Yeah, I because I nothing well, from no, that I mean, era would have surprised me. If, if there were like these five to ten minute. I mean, it's happened YouTube before. Highlight videos and actually, Gardenhire did mention that ah, I've seen him. I've seen some clips of him on YouTube. That's what well, you're thought, not going to yeah. see the ground ball to short on YouTube. <laughs> You're going to see the laser to the gap on YouTube. Oh, yeah. So, you know, if you're the Twins, you could put him in your starting rotation, and then it's not like the Twins have a solidified DH. You could you could DH him, but that's so unprecedented for a guy to be a starting pitcher I would and prob- also I a— I think I would probably start him out just doing the one thing. I think I would probably just—which is fine. But if you just, and then if he can hit, great. But if you just start him off doing the one thing, you're saying goodbye to the second thing because it's going to take a lot just to— to train enough and see enough. He's going to have to see Major League Pitching on a regular basis to be a good hitter. He could be like a good pitcher hitter. I see what hitter. you're saying. My, my guess, Madison Bumgarner is a pretty good pitcher hitter, but not a great overall hitter. My guess is they'll pick one, I would think. I I see that, but that's the way it's always been, and I don't think it... I, I think you should... If this guy can be both, why not push the envelope and let him do both? If he can if he can do both, but are, are you going to put him, him in a position... Why not let him try to do both at first? I guess the question becomes this. Are you putting him in a position to potentially struggle at both because he's trying to do too much as opposed to doing one thing really well? That That's the question. The only thing I'd be worried about is if you're doing a lot of scouting and if your head just explodes because you're trying to do scouting reports for opposing pitchers and for opposing hitters. Right, yeah. There's but, a, it, it and, there's a a, and, and the language barrier and the culture barrier coming in your first couple years. I would probably years. ease him in. That's all I'm saying. But it's it could be uh, an interesting hot stove offseason for the Twins if they're also in on... The Japanese Babe Ruth Otani, and now free agency has has begun. Correct. Oh yeah, you could have signed on so Monday you if sign, you wanted guys. to. That's In fact, the Justin Upton now? signed uh, back with the Angels. I think it was before the uh, the Monday hey, opening. Just quickly, does baseball would baseball be best served uh, to get a system where you did have when when the window opens a little bit more activity immediately? Because that's one thing about football that's a lot of fun. Um, and I don't know if you could do it or not. Well, the, but the act, the winter meetings are basically that. I mean, the winter meetings, so many things happen that week. All the big trades and signings happen. So it just happens a month after the free agency window opens up. I mean, the winter meetings are where you get the Albert Pujols big contract and where you get <laughs> yeah, the John Carlos Stanton. Well, all that stuff yeah. happens. Uh, all right, let's come back. We both enjoyed a couple nights ago the Ric Flair 30 for 30 documentary on ESPN. Greg Gagne called the show yesterday, longtime AWA star. He trained with Ric Flair in the early days, and he told some stories, just just called in randomly at the end of yesterday's show. And so he said, hey, we got to go right now because we're up against the clock. You want to call back in tomorrow? We're going to talk Ric Flair, get some great stories, old school stuff when we come back. Mackie and Judd. Mackie and Judd show rolls on. That's right, sports fans. (laughs) 
This is 1500 ESPN. Back then, especially in the early 80s, it was a new thing to be telling how much money you had. You would brag about how many women you had. I mean, you were really groundbreaking doing that, right? Where did that come from? The night before. <laughs> if I said it on TV, I did it. I lived my gimmick. All right, uh, Judd, uh, we're, we both enjoyed the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary about the nature boy, Ric Flair. At the end of our show yesterday, uh, longtime AWA star, two-time AWA TV champ, two-time AWA tag team champ, and uh, and a guy who goes way back with Ric Flair, Greg Ganyu, called into the show. Uh, and we ran out of time yesterday, Greg, because we were up against Garage Logic at 1 o'clock there. And so we thank you for uh, coming back on today. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, Rick, uh, it was a great piece that uh, ESPN and Ray Karp uh, put out on Rick. And what you saw and what you heard, um, you know, I, can, I grew up with Rick. And uh, our family was traveled with Rick and his, his family. So my daughter, Gail, after watching uh, the premiere at, down in uh, St. Louis Park, she came out of there and she said, you know, Dad, if Rick wouldn't have been so honest and open, this thing wouldn't have worked. But he really opened up and he, he told it the way it was. Yeah. When did, he really did. What, what, when did you notice, you know, because he got into a plane crash in the, in the 70s and, and mm-hmm. that sort of gave him a chance because he lost a bunch of weight, gave him a chance to, to, uh, to come up with what we now know as the nature boy uh, persona. What was that transition like from when he was just like Richard Fleer, and what did you notice for him becoming this big megastar who essentially changed his personality? Well, my my father's the one that well, it saw it in him, and you know we talked about it. You saw it in the episode in the uh, in the uh, thirty for thirty where Rick actually quit, and uh, we never told Vern this, but uh, we had convinced Rick that at the end of the camp when we finally graduated. You know, we, we trained in this old barn, and we were on the second floor, and there was no windows. Uh, we trained up in, through Jan- in the middle of January, you know, and be freezing our butts off in there. And we had Flair convinced that this little window up on the second floor, we had to dive out of it and land as flat as we could on both the manure and the, and the frozen dirt down there. And he was scared to death that that's the only way he would graduate. And that was one of the reasons he he quit. But we didn't tell Vern that because he'd have, he'd, he'd have kicked all our butts. So so that was the why he didn't show up that one day. But uh, uh, I think we all saw it in Rick, and uh, Vern saw it in the the six of us that made it through the camp. That we all had something that would you know really project well in the ring and with the fans. And Rick, even back in college, I mean, he he was, you know, the, he was really the nature boy then, but he didn't really know it. Um, I mean, everything he did then, he also did in professional wrestling. He never really changed much. Tell us more about the camp, Greg. I mean, just uh, oh. what what was your dad looking for in people? Because, I, I mean, there, there, there's part athlete here. There's part entertainer. There, there's lots of things. Just that camp, because they, they touched on it uh, during the uh, the flare piece, but I felt like there was a lot more there that, that was uh, intriguing, to say the least. Well, Vern, over the years, he, he uh, we actually lived in a trailer in 1949. He wrestled in Minneapolis. They told him he was too small, sent him to Norman, Oklahoma, where my mom, dad, and I lived in a trailer and traveled to Oklahoma, Texas, and Louisiana. 
and Vern won the junior heavyweight, uh, light heavyweight title when he was in Oklahoma. They told him he was too small to wrestle in Minneapolis. 1950, then he got a call from Fred Kohler in Chicago that they were going on network TV, and they needed someone with his background. He was NCAA champion a couple times, Big Ten champion four times, wrestled on the Olympic team. So he wanted that, you know, that image. So Vern gets to Chicago, and they said, uh, Vern, here's what we're going to do with you tonight. This is our first shot at network TV. We're going to dress you up as a Martian and lower you from the ceiling. <laughs> and he said, well, that, he said, the hell you are. He said, you've got 30 wrestlers here. I've got my boots and my tights, and I'm the, I gave him all his credentials. She said, I'm going down to the ring. You can send them in one at a time, two at a time. I don't care. And if I can't beat all of them, I'll quit. <laughs> and nobody would get in the ring with him. So shortly after that, he got on, the TV started, and he became like the Hulk Hogan of that era. And the first time he realized TV, what, it, what magnitude it had with the, with the public, was him and Pat O'Connor were sent to Buffalo, New York, to wrestle a match. They got in at the airport. Um, they couldn't get to the, to the arena. There was so much traffic. And they said, oh, man, this is going to kill our gate. What's going on here tonight? They found out it was for the wrestling. It was sold out, and they turned about 20,000 people away. So Vern then realized how strong TV was and that they needed to change the image of wrestling. They needed more athletes in it. So he wanted athletes that had athletic backgrounds, that uh, were athletic, good, pretty good bodies, and uh, he trained 144 wrestlers over the years. Man. And out of that, probably 140 all were main event wrestlers. Yeah. Yeah. But he had that vision. So when he saw guys like Rick and uh, Ken Patera and Jim and myself and the Iron Sheik, he knew that we had something there that would spark the public to have the interest to come and watch us. Uh, Ma Mackie and, and Judd. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off correct. there, Greg. No, uh, I was just going to reintroduce you. Greg Ganyu, uh is our guest here. We're talking Ric Flair stories off the 30 for 30 from... From the other night, and now Rick Rick broke away from the AWA in the mid seventies, and then you know went on to Jim Crockett Promotions and NWA World Championship Wrestling. But so I'm not uh, uh, apologies for my my gap in uh, in the timeline. No, that's okay, but I'm wondering about Rick Flair in the ring, and even just stories you've heard about these sixty minute matches and uh, and the way that he would call matches. What can you what can you tell us about his style in the ring? Well, it was, uh, we were all trained from Vern, so, you know, we, it was kind of second nature to all of us. Uh, you know, we were six hours a day, six days a week in the ring. And I mean, uh, the first hour was calisthenics. The, the second one was learning how to protect yourself with falls. The third hour was holds and counter holds. And the fourth hour was, uh, submission wrestling. Then we had an hour of hitting the ropes, learning how to hitting them. And Rick got knocked out there, and she got knocked out hitting the ropes and tearing all the skin off our body. Mm. But from all the repetition, it's just like any sport or anything you do well, you have to do over and over and over again. And pretty soon, it's just second nature when you get in the ring. And uh, we all wrestled our matches. Rick, more than anybody, uh, he was the champion of the NWA, and he'd have to. You know, he'd wrestle 360 days a year, and sometimes he'd have to do double shots on Saturday and Sunday. Whereas at the AWA, we only went out for about 270 matches. But uh, Rick was actually sent, we were all sent out of the camp after we 
were trained to go to different areas to, to learn it. Jim went to Kansas City. Um, Iron Sheik went down to Florida. Bob Ruggers went to Florida. He sent Rick to North Carolina. And Rick was supposed to go there for two years and then come back to the AWA. Well, he got so successful down with the Crockett organization that uh, they wouldn't let him go. And uh, they saw the NWA, saw the talent he had, and he became the champion. And, you know, you had to, the one thing you had to do was learn to adapt to all your different, the different personalities that you were wrestling. Everybody wrestled different. And Rick was excellent at, at uh, you know, being able to wrestle any style and with anybody. And uh, then with all the charisma he had and his work ethic in the ring, uh, he became a success, a huge success. Mm. I don't know if that answered your question or not. If I <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Greg, give me the uh, give me the craziest uh, fit for air flare story that that you saw that that you can tell us. Ah, uh, God, the craziest one. Ah. Uh... Jesus, you know, I, I told a couple to Rory, but they didn't put them on. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I don't know if it can. I, uh, if you, if you, uh, if you can avoid the main swear words and uh, tap dance around yeah. the uh, the graphic stuff, we'll you take the we'll take the story. Set the scene. Oh, I know you guys want a story bad. I'm just trying to think of one I can tell here that I'm not going to get uh, get in trouble with. Uh, Oh geez. Well, okay, we're in we're in St. Louis one night. Um and Rick Rick I uh, was huge in St. Louis and Jim and I were pretty well established there and uh we after the matches we were staying at the Marriott Hotel and it was Billy Francis, Russ's brother, Rick and myself. And they were serving drinks in mason jars that night. <laughs> and the three of us were at this table and Rick always ordered he wouldn't order one, he'd order three or four at a time for everybody. So we're pounding them down, and there's a table next to us got four young ladies on it, and we start talking to them, and they are uh, wives of the St. Louis Blues hockey team. Wow. Oh, no. <laughs> Should I stop? <laughs> no, keep going so far. You're well, fine. Did... Yeah. <laughs> I hope my wife doesn't have the room. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, the bar, the bar closed down about 2 o'clock. And Rick had a suite, so he told the bartender to send down, I don't know, probably 20, 20 more of these mason jars full of booze. So we go down, and, and we're, just, we're, we're just talking and having fun and, and drinking, and we're talking about, you know, stories on the road and the girls, their husbands are away from road and how, how hard it is on the families. And, you know, we're, that's the way we're communicating. Well, Rick disappears, and he goes into the bathroom, and he comes out. And he's got his robe on. And every time he came out, it was, "Woo! It's showtime, ladies! It's showtime!" <laughs> and he'd open up the he opened up the robe, and there was nothing underneath. Of course, <laughs> except, <laughs> except the erection that he was so proud of. All the time. <laughs> that seems like a tra- it's become a trademark well, move for him over the years. Oh God! Well, two of the girls ran out of the room. <laughs> And the other ones just kind of laughed, and then the, the party just kind of continued. I suppose for him, if there's if it's an odds game, right? If there's five at the table and and only one doesn't freak out, then you know whatever he wins. Well, you know, God. I mean, Rick Rick had he had a bill with the Crockett family for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. What he would do after a match in Charlotte, 
uh, he would rent their jet plane from them, and he'd take five or six girls, and he'd fly to Vegas. And they would party all the way to Vegas. He had a hotel room. He had all five of them in the room with him. Drink and party all night, fly back, and then go on to the next town and do the same thing the next night. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he was, in his constitution, I mean, I heard you guys say nobody could drink like that. He did it every single day. So 10 beers, 10 beers, and like five mixed drinks per day yeah. for 17 years, I think he said? Well, even well, that was years. that was that was between 72 and 89. Yeah. And it ain't yeah. like he stopped drinking in the 90s, right, Greg? No. Well, I was down in St. Louis with him about three months ago for a WWE uh, pay-per-view. So he came, he got in there at 5 o'clock, and he said, come on, let's go down to the... We were staying at the Hyatt. He said, "Let's go down to the uh, let's go down to the bar." Ruth Christie had a bar there in the in the steakhouse combined. So people at the bar all recognize us, and we're kind of signing autographs. He orders drinks for everybody at the bar. He buys everybody at the bar dinner, and he ordered three drinks for himself. And there was always three drinks in front of him. And we went till the place closed at two in the morning. And I haven't done that in a long time. And I was the next day. Jesus. Rick, he's up late. Let's go. Come on, baby. Woo, we got to get out and get going. <laughs> so we go over to the, the event, and we get out of there. Once the match through, he says, come on, let's go back to the bar. And he brought um, two of the girls from the WWE, Renee, blonde announcer. Yeah, Renee who, Young. Yeah. Yeah. Her, who she's married, and this young gal who just came, they hired from Miami, a young, uh, she did the uh, newscast in Miami, and now she's working for the WWE. It's her first first night there. So we go to the, he takes us to the bar, and Larry Henning and Baron Von Raschke are there, and he's buying Larry and his wife drinks for everybody. And uh, pretty soon they all they all left about ten thirty, eleven o'clock, and uh, I talked to two people at the end of the bar. I couldn't couldn't stand. <laughs> listening to Rick anymore with these two gals. <laughs> He's talking about himself and how proud he is of his uh, instrument, let's call it. <laughs> and uh, woo! woo is right. Pretty soon... <laughs> I come back and he's got it out of his pants. Oh no! Oh yeah, showing the gals what he's so proud of. Oh. And so we close that bar down at two o'clock, and he says, "Come on, there's an after-hours joint. Let's go." And I got to get up at four fifteen to catch a flight. Well, thank God we got over the two girls, and the two of us got over to the bar, and the guys were just closing it, but. He got a couple beers out of them for us, and back to the hotel we went. I went to my room, and he went to his. And what happened after that in his room, I don't know. Who knows? How and is he still stay. alive? Nobody needs to know how, what happened. How Nobody. is this man still still alive? <laughs> well, the they, question, he, had a, he had a close call there. I know he did about in August. two months ago, but uh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Well, Greg, let's. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, go ahead. We have like a minute left here, Greg. Oh, that's okay. He's just you know he was uh, what you saw in Ric Flair. The Nature Boy, you know, he said how he developed it. That was him in college, and that was him his whole life. I mean, that's the way he was, and uh, no different. Uh, great personality. You know, I just think he didn't get enough love at home, and he needed attention all the time, and and that was the way he got it. Yeah. 
That's awesome stuff. Super guy, though. Just a super guy. Well, we'd yeah, love to have you on again sometime, uh, I don't know, in the coming weeks. And I'm sure we could. We, there's so many stories we could get into from even well, non-Ric Flair stories. So I know, but i got to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Yeah, well, we can pre-record and censor as needed. So. There we go. That's the way to do it. All right, Greg. Well, great thanks, stuff, thanks man. Thanks for having me Thank on. You. Okay, you guys have a wonderful show. Thank you so much. I always listen to it. Yep. Appreciate it. Take that's, care uh, good day. That's a longtime AWA star, Greg Gagne, uh, son of Vern. And those are some, so he was, his connection with Ric Flair was, you know, leading up through training all the way up through the mid 70s. Ric Flair left the AWA in the mid 70s and went to the MWA, but obviously like all these guys still connect together and travel around and stuff. So by the way, that last story he told wasn't from like the 80s. It was from the summer. No, I know. (laughs) Ric Flair. It's remarkable. Man. All right, Dave, top that. Stuff coming up next. Well... I've got good stuff. I don't know if it's better than that, and I am going to keep it in my pants. Okay. Thank you. Becky and Judd are back. Okay, let's not scare the children. On 1500 ESPN. And Stuff You Should Know About is sponsored by Firestone Complete Auto Care. Come into Firestone Complete Auto Care and get $60 on a Firestone Visa prepaid card by mail when you purchase a set of four eligible Firestone tires. Whatever you drive, drive a Firestone. In sports, there's a lot of stuff you should simply be aware of. There was stuff going on that no one talked about. That's pretty heavy stuff. Let me show you some stuff. I don't do that stuff no more. This stuff can give you brain damage. And then there's the stuff you should know about. Lots of great stuff. This is the fun stuff. I love this stuff. Good stuff. Man, this stuff's good. This is that kind of stuff. I want to check that stuff out. Mackie and Judd now continues. This is very serious stuff we're talking about here. With stuff you should know about. All right, Dave. Stuff you should know about. Yeah, boys. Let's start it with one of these. And now Phil Mackie does everything he can to ignore reality and defend a hero of his youth. Despite knowing in his heart that hero is broken beyond repair. And that hero, as it usually is, Tiger Woods. He was on Holding Court, the podcast with Gino Ariema the other day. Really? Okay. Yes. Those two must be buddies because he was on for quite a while and talking about everything, including his swing and how it's changed over the years and how he's always been constantly tinkering with it. Now with the injuries, well, there's there's certain limitations, aren't there, Tiger? People ask me, once you go back to your 2000 point, I can't. Um, no, no, you can't. My, my knee is trashed from all the years of playing that way. Yeah, I've had four operations on my knee. Forget when when my back was bad, but the pre pre surgeries and pre back problems. People are saying the same thing. Once you go back to two thousand, I can't. My knee is trashed from playing that way. I can't can't do that anymore. I have to look for a different way. So just a reminder, it's not just the back. His knee is quote trashed. So what's bad? So the back's bad. The knee's bad. The uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's too bad. You know what isn't? His heart. Heart. His heart. Oh yeah, his heart. His heart still right beats, place. doesn't it? Woo! It still beats. We okay. think. We're for pretty now. sure. For now. For the it's moment. Still beating for now. Speaking yes. of Tiger Woods, this is a story from Doc Rivers, now coach of the Clippers. This is from last week. Told a story relating to Tiger Woods from back of the days when he was leading things on the Celtics bench. I'll tell you a true story. Uh, when I was coaching the Celtics, uh, I think it was four games left in the season, and everything had been wrapped up as far as playoffs. The Masters was on. And um, at halftime, Danny Ainge tells me that Tiger's making a run. He said, get thrown out. 
Um, he's like, get thrown out and come back and, and watch with me. So I go out, and it was like the first play in the third quarter. I go for it, like yelling. Ah! And I want to say it was Jacob Donald, but I'm not sure who it was. Um, and he just stares at me. Nothing. And then doing a free throw, he tells me to come over. He says, I want to watch it too. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's amazing. Woo! That's a great story. Love that one. <laughs> Are you guys trusting the process yet? Well, after last night, I think you you have to, right? Which process would that be? Oh, you know what process. Uh-huh. The Philadelphia 76ers, man. All they do is win. That question was put to Stephen A. yesterday on first take. Are you starting to trust the process? Hell no. And I'm not laughing. I don't bit? play that game. Not even a little bit. I despise it. I can't stand it. I don't play this mess with this process. And it's very, very simple because I don't believe that any franchise should have the right to lose on purpose for years, for years, while still charging the paying customer and you're making no effort to win. I think it's disgraceful. I think it's disgusting. I can't stand it. And I don't want to hear a damn thing about it. A matter of fact, I'm going to start cursing people out that ask me about it. Not over FCC Airways, but when I get off the air. That's how sick I am of this damn process. Sports are fun. Wait, wait, wait. I think he takes sports just really seriously. Disgraceful, disgusting, and he didn't use despicable? Yeah, you really? got you to you put those in threes. Don't you I have agree. to use You got to put those in threes. And despicable, because the spit flies are despicable. Yeah, That's where the spit just comes flying out. Uh, but, like, they're they're becoming pretty good. They're 6-4 and four now, and they've got some big-time talented star players, Joel Embiid. So if they all of a sudden become one of the top five or six teams in the Eastern Conference, then didn't it work? Didn't their process work? <laughs> I am disgusted by that process. My guy, Bob Costas, was on a panel a couple days ago with Wilbon, Kornheiser, Christine Brennan at, I can't remember what college, but talking about all things sports and all things media. And leave it to my guy, Bob, the compass, the moral truth of sports (laughs) and media in this country to talk about the biggest issue facing all sports, well, in all of sports, but facing one particular one today the nature of football is this unless and until there is some technology which we cannot even imagine let alone has been developed that would make this inherently dangerous game not marginally safer but acceptably safe the cracks in the foundation are there the day-to-day issues serious as they may be they may come and go but you cannot change the basic nature of the game. I certainly would not let, if I had an athletically gifted 12 or 13-year-old son, I would not let him play football. It's a house of cards, boys. Which leads to, which leads to what we've talked about before, which in 30, 35 years is football boxing. Boxing in the 30s and 40s was a must-see, everybody-loved-it sport. Rick Spielman, what do you think about everyone panicking, Bob Costas panicking about the future of football? <laughs> I mean, it's, people opt into football. The, people are choosing to make millions of dollars and worry about the ramifications later. So football's not going to die tomorrow. No, no, no. It, it would be it would be an, a slow erosion caused by the fact that kids don't play it. Do one more? Ah, I could do one more. How about the Giants? You've got players off the record to Josine Anderson ripping their coach, Ben McAdoo. Other players saying, nah, it's not that bad. This was McAdoo talking about the message he has for his own team. Don't buy into the lies, the lies that your feelings are telling you. 
you know, this thing's not about feelings, it's a decision. And uh, let's make the decision to begin again. I don't even know what that means. Oh, what? Are you still buying them for the Super Bowl, Phil? Uh, you know, I think mathematically, if they run the table and get three tiebreakers to help, and uh, they need that like fourth NFC conference tiebreaker. Sam, here comes Sam Darnold. Here comes Sam Darnold, number one pick. Ben McAdoo, you're going to get a new beginning. Probably sometime soon. (laughs) If Ben McAdoo walked in the locker room and said what you just played from that soundbite, he lost the entire room because they all said we have no bleeping clue what you just said. Don't buy into the lies. The lies that your feelings are telling you. You know, this thing's not about feelings. It's a decision. And uh, let's make the decision to begin again. He's just telling them. You know what that noise. is? The Have some fun. That you know what that is, boys? You. That is lyrics to a song right there. It makes no sense, but you could actually write a song around that, and it's lyrics to a song. He looks way too much like Uncle Rico to be taken Don't seriously. That's, I do take Uncle Rico seriously. That's the difference between you and me. Mm. Maybe if Ben McAdoo could, could throw that pigskin over the mm. over them their mountains. That cookie dust. Don't here. buy into the lies. Never oh. buy into the lies. I think it's uh, officially time to go to break, All isn't right. it? You're not helping the segment. Mackie and Judd. It's lyrics to a song. Phil Mackie, Judd Zogad. Is this really as good as it gets? Because it's still not good enough. Mackie and Judd. Make us believe again. You don't owe it to yourselves. You owe it to us. On 1500 ESPN. Now on the 1500 ESPN stream player, a Blu-ray combo pack of Overdrive. Starring Scott Eastwood from the writers of Too Fast, Too Furious. And the director of Taken comes an action-packed thrill ride. Overdrive, available now on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital HD. Rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. Head to the 1500 ESPN stream player to find out how you can win. you got to give them credit, but I also thought uh, we, we hurt ourselves. So third quarter was not our best. We'll take a good look at it break it down and see where we can make our improvements. We played pretty good in the first half. We didn't close out the first quarter well. We didn't close out the second quarter well. But overall, we we did okay. And to beat a team like this, you have to play for 48 minutes. And so we didn't do that. And then the first five of the third, you know, uh, we we didn't play the way we needed to play. Yeah, the one thing, you know, they get, they just got beat by one of the greatest teams of all time, even without Kevin Durant. That's a team that broke the NBA regular season wins record. They're 14-0 in their last 14 without Kevin Durant. I am curious, though, about Jimmy Butler. So his average the last three seasons going into this year is about 21 points a game. He was 24 points a game last year yep. with the Chicago Bulls. He's just under 15 points a game now. Uh, the shots are... That's a pretty big discrepancy. He took almost 17 shots a game last year with Chicago. It's around 12, so he's sacrificing about five shots, which, you know, you got Towns and uh, Wiggins wants to shoot a lot, and Jeff Teague's going to put the ball up. I feel like he's just easing off the gas pedal offensively. He's trying to be a distributor guy, play defense, facilitate, get guys in position, and I'm wondering at some point if he just starts to take over games more and shoot more like he did in Chicago. I think he's just struggling, too. From the field, which is, you know, it's good. He's going to go through slumps, but I don't watch him right now. I mean, the most important thing about his presence right now, ordinarily, is the fact that it makes a difference for this team. So I don't watch his game or his shots and say, oh, no, that's terrible. I watch his game and say, it seems to help. Not last night, but it certainly has helped. What, before last night, they had lost one game all year that he played in. So, but he said, I want to say it was after. 
a home game about a week ago or so. He just said, I'm struggling, which is probably true. And and it's it's an adjustment probably a little bit back to this offense. It's an adjustment to new teammates. There's lots of things. They're going to go, Butler and Teague and a few of these guys, I think, are going to go through periods where where they're adapting. I don't think this thing comes together in full until what? 25 games in where where people start to look comfortable yeah. 30 games I, I mean it's not it's not going to be immediate and they're trying to incorporate different players and they and, and Teague for one I think is trying to adjust and he definitely Teague I believe wants to facilitate he really does but he doesn't need to consistently and Sunday he was brilliant last night he wasn't so I think as far as the on-the-court product goes, this is going to be a work in progress for at least 25 games. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, well, I, I don't know what the exact number is, but I mean, into December is usually what it takes for these new collections to to figure it out. The fact that the Wolves are 7-4 and four right now, and they have two wins over Oklahoma City, and they've won a couple other tough games, the fact that they're sitting at 7-4, uh, 7-4 about 10 days into the month of November... That's a you could easily have dug yourself a much deeper hole the way you play because it's not like you've been playing a lot of defense. You gave up 44 points in the third quarter last night, mm-hmm. and you gave up 125 points per game to two very mediocre Eastern Conference teams. So even without the deep, and now Andrew Wiggins was very active last night. Uh, he was tipping passes, he was uh, collecting steals, he was rebounding last night. He had four steals last night. So yeah, he was very active on defense last night, but. You know, I don't know. They're seven and four. Last night, that was free money if you would have won that game on the road. National TV, Golden State's all perked up for that. So I was, I was far more frustrated by, by the, the uh, sporting event I watched at six p.m. than the one I watched at nine thirty p.m. Let's put it that way. I, I was, was far more some, somebody, angst-ridden by that one. Somebody in the hallway said, "Is Judd going to do this after like all forty-five wild losses this season?" Is he going to really come in and be that worked up after every single game? Well, that, it's going to be more than 45. 50? At the rate they're going, absolutely. And and if you if you think I'm fr- frustrated, wait till uh, wait till Boods at about January 1st if this is still going on. You'll get frustrated, all right. A lot of bag skates coming up for the Well, his job is on the line if they don't win. You can just ignore them and focus on go for basketball. Which I'm very or excited about, Or go watch about, a good Netflix documentary. No, I don't have time for that. You don't have to watch The Wild if they're boring and terrible. What are you talking about? I I got the wild. I've got a slate of games. Make these besides teams that. earn your attention. 